Portland isn't the first time that we've seen lead levels. DC was another example. So we just, we have to learn the lesson to really follow up and make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again in other cities. So here's to Flint. That was Michigan Radio reporter Lindsay Smith back in January, speaking from the stage at Columbia University's Lowe Library. She was there accepting her 2017 DuPont Award for her team's terrific reporting on the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. We're back with another episode of our summer series. I'm Abby Wright, here with my co-host, Lisa Cohen. Hi, Abby. So the summer series continues. Yes, this summer we continue to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the DuPont Columbia Awards by sitting down with some of this year's award winners. This week, Lindsay Smith, who will talk to us about her audio documentary, Not Safe to Drink. Yeah, her documentary traces the evolution of the crisis, which started in 2014 after Flint officials switched their drinking water source to the Flint River. Prior to that, the city had piped their water in from Lake Huron, adding anti-corrosion chemicals along the way to protect the water from contaminants in the aging pipes. But amidst budget crunches, a state-appointed emergency manager made the very questionable call to switch water sources. And tragically, officials neglected to add the vital anti-corrosion chemicals that would prevent this rust, iron, and lead from leaching into the water from these old pipes. That meant thousands of children were exposed to high levels of lead, levels that had a devastating effect on the health of all of Flint's residents. What started in 2014 is an ongoing story. As of last week, the Attorney General has filed more than 50 criminal charges against 15 state and local officials. That includes charges of involuntary manslaughter that were filed just last Wednesday against the director of the state's health department and four other public officials. We were fortunate to catch up with Lindsay last week, who spoke to us over the phone from Michigan. We got to hear about how she and her team investigated the crisis in Flint before it became such a huge national story and how covering it has impacted her. And after our conversation, stay tuned for an update on some of the brand new developments in Flint. But now, here's Lindsay Smith, a reporter and producer with Michigan Radio. This is an edited version of the conversation. So welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. So take us back. Michigan Radio was one of the first news outlets to break this story about the lead levels in Flint. Um, The documentary aired in December of 2015, Not Safe to Drink. But can you take us back and talk a little bit about how you guys first discovered what was going on with the water in Flint? Sure. So as this um, switch to the Flint River uh, decision was being made, um, we can, we reported about the emergency manager, which is this appointed official that helped uh, lead that decision. And we reported um, just sort of the daily grind of when people, after that switch happened, um, the people that started showing up. And this was uh, to like city council meetings in 2014 with their jugs of brown water. And um, we reported about boil water advisories and then this high levels of um, disinfectant byproducts. And it was just a kind of a slow drumbeat of, you know, drip, 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 story after story. But officials would always just tell us, you know, kind of the same line that that everything that was technically safe to drink and it was it was just a color issue or just, um, 
you know, something that wasn't as big of a deal as we know now that it was. In that summer of 2015, uh, we got a hold of a memo that was leaked from the EPA to Liam Walters, a, a resident in Flint, who ended up being the main character in the documentary. And she gave it to a reporter that she had worked with, and he shared it with us. I'll put it this way. I will never forget reading that memo and thinking, wow, if this is true, this is really, really messed up. Like, I think that was the first time it really dawned on me. All of these things could be related. And it was the way that this one person at the EPA kind of broke it down that really floored me. And so we we tried to really um, bring that out into the public. And then it wasn't long after that that um, Virginia Tech and uh, that the local pediatricians came out and said, you know, this is a big deal. Um, so that was that was really what led us to um, decide in September of 2015, late September, that we needed to bring this, like, forget the drip, drip, drip. Like, we're doing spot news stories packages, you know, four-minute features. Forget that. We need, like, a full hour to bust this whole thing out and really lay down the narrative that had been happening for the past two, three years. What was it in that memo, in that EPA memo, that, that yeah. drew your attention and that reaction? And could you tell just from looking at it already? I mean, it sounds like you knew just reading it that there was a problem. It wasn't uh, so technical that you had to have it translated first? No. It, I mean, there were parts of it that were technical. And like when I go back and read it now, it's even more, it's like even more jaw-dropping to me because of the things that I know about the lead and copper rule and the things that I know about lead service lines and corrosion control treatment. Um, it's even more damning <laughs> to me when I read it now. But yeah, it is pretty user-friendly. I mean, and, and this EPA guy, I mean, it, this was a a draft memo. It wasn't a finalized piece. And that was why the EPA wouldn't technically talk to us about it at all, because it wasn't supposed to be out there. Um, What was in the memo that to me was really, I mean, combined with the history that we already knew, because we were in these meetings hearing about this stuff all the time, was really that this scientist was showing (laughs) the levels of lead in Leanne Walter's house were, I mean, not just hazardous waste levels of lead in her water, but like twice as much, almost three times as much as what the EPA considers hazardous levels. And we're talking like thousands of times more than is the drinking water standard. So, I mean, that fact alone, but then it was combined with what I had already, you know, was hearing coming out of Flint all the time. And, um, just that this guy said, look, there's no way that this woman's house can just be some anomaly. Like, it's too high for it to just be her house. And that's when he brought up this issue of corrosion control treatment um, and said, you know, it is not good that um, that the city is not using, you know, treating its water to prevent leaching of these heavy metals into water that's just highly unusual. And the more I found out about that, that like pretty much every city uses some kind of corrosion control treatment um, and that the state allowed the city to do that and basically just told us that like that weekend, I was like, wow, this is just, this is just crazy. 
as someone who drinks water out of a tap every day, I'm not aware of con- corrosion control treatment for my drinking water. That sounds a little scary to me. Is that it's safe? The, cor- the corrosion control actually makes the water safer because it isn't leaching as much copper out of the copper pipes? When you see a lot of Flint's water, like the the pictures of the brown water or rusty water, um, that's sort of a, a symptom, right, of of not having corrosion control. That's that iron that's kind of leaching out of out of pipes. But lead, it, you can't see lead, and so even in areas where you don't necessarily see. Um, you know, brown water or rusty water. It's it's what you can't see that can be more dangerous than copper or iron. Um, lead is really it's a neurotoxin, so it's it's just its impact is 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 much more dramatic health wise than um, than a, say a copper. But yeah, most every uh, water system in the country uses some kind of corrosion control treatment. They have to at least have a plan to reduce corrosion in in old pipes. Um, most urban cities, older cities, and this is a lot on the East Coast, Northern Seaboard, uh, the Midwest for sure, Chicago, Pittsburgh. Um, a lot of these cities have old lead pipes that were built, you know, in the 1940s, 30s, and before then. So you um, you talked in your DuPont speech when you came up and got the award about how grateful you were to your news editors that. And I think the expression you used was they had spines of steel, and you were speaking about all the pushback that you got from both the local and the state government when the stories were surfacing and being posted and you were being told to take them down. So I, I would like to hear the story of how that happened and what what the response was. Well, I mean, obviously throughout the, the sort of lead up in, in that summer of 2015, I mean, the state of Michigan had really made this decision and they weren't turning back. <laughs> like There was no going back for them. They were just going to plow through and let Flint stay on the Flint River until this new pipeline was built. And then once the new pipeline was built, I think they were just going to cross their fingers, hope for the best, and things would get better after that. It was like the boat had already left. You know what I mean? The train had already left the station. So it was already kicking it took a lot for the state government and state officials um, to pull that back. Um, and and I, if we played any small role in that, that's just awesome. But, yeah, so when we, I mean, not only did the pediatricians get pushed back, um, the scientists that came out and debunked the state data, um, the state government pushed back against the EPA guy that I mentioned um, who, who drafted that memo. So once we started putting out the documentary in chunks, um, we, we put it out like in, in three pieces. The first, the first two pieces were out the day the documentary was going to air in its entirety. Um, we got a call from the governor's public information officer. He called me that morning that the documentary was going to air. And he was really... Uh, you know, he was he was pretty hot. Had had you approached the governor's office, you know, in doing your reporting for an interview or comments? Yeah, I mean, we had talked plenty with the governor's office. Um, this person was a new person, so he just didn't know what happened and was trying to convince me that I didn't know either. And and when I kind of pushed back and said, "Look, I've already had this conversation with the governor's former PIO." I have talked to the Treasury Department's PIO. I have talked to the Department of Environmental Quality. I have talked to the Department of 
you know, health department. I've been at this long enough to know to just take a deep breath and send them to my editor, (laughs) to my boss, because they can handle that stuff. But we basically, we had a conference call with them an hour before the documentary aired and um, said, well, no, actually, the emergency manager did make this decision and the emergency manager was in charge. This is the state appointed person uh, by the governor. And the governor's office basically said, um, okay. And then that was it. So it was weird. And, and that, that prompted me to write a, a reporter's notebook, we call it. Um, and, I, and I kind of called the governor's office out for it. I mean, I wasn't trying to be personal against this one gentleman, but I, I felt like at the time that was part of the problem was this denial that the state was trying to say, oh, it was the city that did this. They were the ones that like they were still in like denial mode and they weren't taking responsibility or they were completely misinformed. Like they really just didn't know who made the decision. You had done such thorough reporting leading up to that conversation that you had nailed down the story. Tell us a little bit about all the effort that went into that reporting. Well, we had a team, an amazing team, really. Um, The Flint reporter that was there um, doing a lot of the day-to-day grind work, Steve Carmody, he's just done a a really amazing job over the past three, four, almost four years now. At that time, there was so much news coming out every day. We really, that's why I got looped in, because there was just too much for him to cover everything that was happening on a daily basis and write an hour-long documentary. So, I really was brought in to produce that specifically. And then as we um, worked on it, it was me, Steve, um, two other reporters, and and one main editor. As we worked on gathering interviews and archive tape that Steve had gathered over the years um, and trying to line everything up, we would come across other stories and report those out. Like I would kind of hand things off. By the time the documentary came out, nothing in it should have been a surprise to anybody. We had already reported most of this out. The documentary was just the way to, like I say, bring all this drip, drip, drip into a single narrative so that people could really see the scope of all of these things that kind of came together to create the Flint water crisis. And actually, that documentary is credited with really bringing national attention to the issue. And I wonder how, I I guess, is that like a double-edged sword? On the one hand, you feel like, oh, this is going to get a lot of attention. And on the other hand, wait, I've done all this work. And now, you know, the big guns are coming in and owning the story. Um, You know, I can see that sentiment. But for us as a shop, I felt like we were just all like screaming from the rooftops. (laughs) Like, we were thrilled to see um, national big guys, as you say, it come in um, and and report on that, and you know, and we still see that now. Obviously, it was just the third anniversary of the uh, water switch in late late April, and we had like this whole renewed, um, you know, national outlets in town and that kind of thing. I mean, it's a good and the bad. You know, like I said earlier, it's a really complex story. So a lot of times when I read, you know, big national articles, they have some really good stuff that I wouldn't think of because you're kind of in the woods, you know, you're in the weeds and you can't see the forest kind of a thing. But that I do also cringe at the errors that I see, the sort of like technically that's not correct thing. But, you know, I think overall we still are very um, thrilled to see 
big guys come in and report about Flint. Um, I, I hope that they continue to do that because I, the story is not going to go away. And I feel like making sure that people follow up on this stuff and holding people accountable. I mean, that's why I do this. I mean, that's, that's what is intriguing to me. That's why I'm attracted to journalism because I, I want to see a sort of justice, right? So, so I'm, I'm always happy to see people do good, you know, quality reporting on Flint still because I, I think there are still stories to be told out of the city for sure. You know, Lindsay, one thing that you did so well in the documentary that really struck the jury and me as a listener was how accessible you made the science reporting, which is such a hard thing to do, right, to connect with audiences when you're talking about in very technical terms or complex scientific ideas and how they connect with average people. Tell us a little bit about how you do that. That's a a really great compliment, and I appreciate it. I tend to get myself into these sort of things, not on purpose, because I do have a love-hate relationship with data, uh, for the radio especially. Um, Data is just really hard to get on the radio. Um, When you can read something, you at the very least can go back and reread it if you don't understand it. Or visual, yeah. And with television, you can have charts and graphs and data graphics, visualization. Yeah. and Right, yes. I think graphics are, are the best way to kind of present data, obviously. But the radio, it's really hard. So, I mean, I think what I really tried to do there and what I try to do in any data-rich radio story is to find the single piece of data that is the most telling um, a single piece or two, like, cause you really don't want to overwhelm people. Like, even though to me, it's like, oh, and they did this and look at when you look at this data and you break it down like this, but like, you have to keep people on the same track. You, you don't want to lose them, you know? So, so it's, to me, it's most important to find obviously a, a person that goes along with the data to help illustrate it and give it a story and bring it to life, but also to really be strategic about which piece of data you want to present and not overwhelm people by presenting all kinds of data, even though it might help your case or help your story or back it up. Like you should know that in your head, but just because you know it doesn't mean that you need to make it part of the narrative necessarily. So do you have a science background? How did you, how did you get into this kind of reporting? What's your trajectory? (laughs) <laughs> my my degrees in political science. Um, I did like statistics, uh, political statistics, and I think a lot of that comes in with this kind of work. I mean, I was really fortunate that I have uh, an editor and a reporter that I worked with who was part of this Flint team who does have this background in science and does weekly features on on the environment and um, science-related issues. So having somebody to bounce that stuff off of, I mean, she was, she was super important to how we presented that data, not only in the documentary, but on our website, on like a digital platform, through videos. That actually worked out really well, having her, you know, to just sort of help with that drafting. So how did you first get into journalism, Lindsay? I decided I wanted to be in radio uh, in high school. I really liked acting or the idea of performance in some way, although I wasn't really like super, I, you know, I wasn't in any plays or anything in high school. I just, I really liked performance and I wanted to be able to make a living. 
So I thought that radio might be a way that I could merge that. Um, and then when I got into, I went to like a technical school for radio and it got me behind the scenes really quickly. I worked really hard to get internships and, you know, really just show up and work for free and, you know, bust my chops doing that stuff. And I realized pretty quickly that like commercial radio was just kind of a dead end. I, you know, I didn't want to be a morning show sidekick and... I just didn't really see where women could fit into commercial radio. And um, and I was also introduced in college to public radio. And there was where I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's good. You know, that's it's quality. It's stuff that I love. It's news. Like I said, my degree is in political science. And I felt like this this was it when I discovered public radio I was like okay this is this is what I can do I can do this because the I have role models there's like clear paths the pay is a little bit better than the commercial shops for sure um and I think you just do more uh, fulfilling work I was lucky that I worked at like a small town radio station while I was going to college so then by the time I got my degree I had you know four years of on-air experience and I had a degree that really put me in a good spot to get an entry-level job. What's happening now, not so much with you, but uh, in the story? Bring us up to date. Where do things stand in Flint? I understand fairly recently there were reports that, that the water in Flint is below that federal warning level. And yet there are also provisos to not stop using filters. What does it all mean? Will it ever resolve? Yeah. So on the issue of the water specifically um, and its safety the water technically meets federal standards for lead and copper now. It's met those standards since the beginning of this year of 2017. Um, but there are still tests that come back pretty high. There was a test in April where somebody's lead levels were like over a thousand parts per billion. And the, the federal limit, by the way, is 15. 15 parts per billion is sort of the federal standard. Um, they'll say no level is safe, but 15 parts per billion is sort of the benchmark. So, you know, there's still areas of Flint where you have spikes. And a lot of that has to do with what it's going to take to solve the problem. And that's replacing lead service lines that were damaged because there was no corrosion control treatment. Um, those pipes... I, they expect they're going to rip about, I think, 18,000 of them out of the ground, which is uh, the bulk of them. And But it's going to take um, three summers to do that. And how many dollars? My God, I can't imagine the cost of something like that. Yeah. They expect it to cost around $90 million. Um, There was a, a settlement agreement that was announced earlier this spring. And the good thing about that settlement agreement is that it's no longer the state government saying, oh, we'll replace the pipes, we'll replace the pipes. We promise we'll replace pipes, which in Flint is a big deal because nobody trusts the state anymore. So now it's a court-ordered replacement of pipes. Mm -hmm. And there'll be oversight, presumably. Right. Yeah. But so the, the, the problem with replacing all the pipes is not only does it take forever, but um, it, the, the sort of physical disturbance tends to like jostle up nearby pipes and that can cause spikes in lead levels. So until the work is <laughs> not so crazy, um, 
they're telling people to keep using these faucet filters in the meantime. Not that everybody trusts those faucet filters, though, I should say. I mean, most people that I talk to in Flint still don't trust the filters and would prefer to use bottled water. Bottled water is still being handed out for free in Flint, but that's going to end by the end of the summer. And so I think that's going to be a, a point of contention, I'll say, in the fall. And it, and it really is important that people learn how to use these filters. It's important for their health. So for a last question for you, Lindsay, um, you know, you've had a great career so far. A lot of our students dream of having jobs like yours and doing that kind of reporting. Do you have any advice you would give to our young, aspiring radio journalist students? Um, it You know, stuff like this kind of, I feel like the older I get, you know, um, the more I try to stay humble and stay curious. This was like a really crazy project for me, and it was unlike anything I've ever done. It's still kind of emotional, and it's weird. When you do something this big, it's really easy to um, get kind of swept up into things. And I think um, it's a roller coaster that you kind of have to ride. There's really, really good times, and then there's really, really bad, difficult times. And uh, you just have to, no matter what, really take care of yourself. Look out for your back. You know, make sure you have people that you work with that watch your back. Um, that's still why I mentioned in, in the acceptance speech about my editors and my boss having a backbone. I mean, I've worked in places where that's not the case and it's, uh, it's rough. So my advice to them is like, you know, get the job that you need to get the stepping stone because the entry level stuff is hard to come by, but keep an eye out for a good shop having that nurturing environment is so important to your success, to being able to do the best reporting that you can and not just doing garbage in, garbage out. Um, and to make sure that you're, you know, take, like I said, taking care of you and taking care of your work and the people that you meet and your sources. All of that stuff is really wrapped in together. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm always just such a mess. Yeah. No, I know. I, I think the other thing that I always like is like it's just hard for me is like people in Flint are still so screwed. Like here I am, I'm all getting these awards and shit and they're like they can't drink water and they don't trust anybody and they people are getting tax foreclosure on their houses now because their water gets shut off because they can't pay their water bills and then then they're outraged that they have to pay their water bills, you know, because they can't drink their water. Right. Right. Like, oh and I'm sure uh, you're writing about that, right? Reporting yeah, about that. Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely are. It's just, uh, it's just never ending, you know, it's, but man, keep an eye out for a shop that, that you know you want to be at and that you know you can get support because they're going to really make sure that you shine. And that's, it's difficult to say, but on this end, I'm saying it's, it's nice to know when that happens. And that's, I think, why I get so emotional about it, because I know how lucky I am to be where I am. That's great advice. Really good advice. Also, the being humble and curious still, keeping that curiosity going over the years. Thank you so much for talking with us, Lindsay. I'm really looking forward to hearing and seeing what you do next. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks again to Lindsay Smith of Michigan Radio. Since we had that conversation with Lindsay, there have been even more major developments in Flint, and not just those new charges of involuntary manslaughter. That's right. We heard Lindsay mention in the conversation there at the end that some Flint residents were facing foreclosures on their homes for failing to pay their water bills. So what's going on there? Well, back in May, the city council voted to put a one-year moratorium on these foreclosures. It was about 8,000 properties that had unpaid water bills that were forcing them into foreclosure. That's about $5 million worth of unpaid water bills. And the city is still struggling and could really use that money to do their jobs and give Flint residents clean water. But there's a major human toll and the citizens' perspective to consider because, as Lindsay put it to us, many people think it's bullshit that they have to pay for water that they can't drink without a filter. Makes sense to me. Fair enough. So just this last week, a four-member panel that was appointed by the state met to consider whether or not to approve the city council's moratorium. So we thought there was going to be some movement, but then on Wednesday, that panel decided to delay taking action one way or another. Mm. Lindsay tells us that she expects them to take it up again before the end of the month. So we will stay tuned. Yes, we will. Before we go, we want to tell you about two quick things. Today, we are actually in Phoenix, Arizona, attending the annual IRE conference. That means investigative reporters and editors. Yes, it is a really dynamic, invigorating conference attended by several hundred of the country's leading investigative reporters. It's really incredible how generous these different uh, reporters are in panels and workshops. You walk away feeling like re-inspired. And we're here to demystify and promote people submitting for our DuPont Award. Second, we have an important deadline to remind you of. July 1st is the last day to apply for the 2018 DuPont Columbia Awards. We're looking for outstanding original reporting in audio or video. It can be online, it can be broadcast, or documentary. Go to www.dupont.org for more information on how to enter your project and how to apply. Thank you, Lisa. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christie Dervaux. Our music is by Dylan Nowick, and today's sound engineer is Ariana Sullivan. Follow us on Twitter at On Assignment Pod, and visit us at www.onassignmentpodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.